Uh, good morning. Invite you to open up in your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 12. We'll get to a scripture reading in just a moment. Um, there, there's this scene in the second Star Wars film, uh, episode uh, 5, The Empire Strikes Back. And there's this scene where Darth Vader is kneeling before this hologram of the evil Emperor Palpatine. And the Emperor is speaking in his sinister voice. There is a great disturbance in the Force. We have a new enemy, the young rebel who destroyed the Death Star. I have no doubt this boy is the offspring of Anakin Skywalker. He could destroy us. The Force is strong with him. The son of Skywalker must not become a Jedi. Now, one of the reasons why the Star Wars films are so epic in nature is they capture the human imagination and they illustrate well certain realities, and particularly the reality of there is evil and there is good. There is dark and there is light. But I'm captured by the expression, a great disturbance. In 1918, a a scholar by the name of Carl Barth was writing about Romans chapter 12 through Romans chapter 16 and looking at this section of what does it mean to be a Christian ethically? What would it look like if the church of God lived in light of these commands and this image? And he called it a great disturbance. Like the evil emperor, when he he looked at Skywalker, he he knew that there was something good and something powerful in him that had to be stopped. In much the same way, if, if Christians were really holy, if they really walked with God and had this otherworldly godliness about them, it would be a great disturbance. In fact, it has been the great disturbance for 2,000 years that when Christians live out their faith, when they walk with boldness, when they walk with love, it changes the world. That's why Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Now, this is just something we know. Society, the world, loves half-hearted Christians. But they don't accept holy men and holy women of God. Because a person who loves Jesus and obeys Jesus, it disturbs those who are in love with themselves and with the world. So let me read to you as Paul turns the corner in his letter and begins to describe what it would look like to be a part of the great disturbance. Paul writes, Romans 12, 1, verses 1 through 8, He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. 
He says, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. And if it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. This is God's word. Father, I would just ask that as we look at these verses, Lord, that it would become more and more true of us by your spirit and for your glory. We pray, God, that it would that these scriptures would shape our minds and change our lives. For your sake, we pray. Amen. So in many ways, Romans 12 through Romans 16 is going to outline like dozens of ways in which Christians individually and the church corporately take part in the great disturbance. Two particular things that we're going to see and spend a lot of time looking at is the the need for godly Christian character, the need for the formation of a strong Christian conscience, That is, you need both godly character and you need a formed conscience to navigate the world as well as to protect the unity and mission of the church. But today we're going to focus on two qualities. And the first one being this idea of being consecrated to God in verses 1 and 2. And then in verses 3 through 8, we're just going to look at humble church service. So verses 1 and 2... are, are this this picture of someone who's totally consecrated to God. And, and I'm going to read it in a, a translation that goes back a number of years uh, by a guy named J.B. Phillips. This is just another way that's been this passage has been translated that I think illustrates what Paul is calling for. The Phillips translation puts these two verses this way. It says, with, with eyes wide open to the mercies of God, I beg you, my brothers as an act of intelligent worship to give him your bodies as a living sacrifice, consecrated to him and acceptable by him. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold, but let God remold your minds from within so that you may prove in practice that plan of God for you is good, meets all his demands and moves towards the goal of true maturity. So Paul begins this section with an authoritative entreaty, right? This is a plea for those who claim to know Jesus Christ and follow him. And and the beginning of it is just to take stock of God's mercies. And when he's using that idea in view of God's mercies or in light of God's mercies, he's referring to all of the things that you've seen in Romans chapters 1 through 11. He's alluding back to 11 chapters that begin with people uh, rebellious toward God, either in kind of wild pagan worship or even in kind of some religious worship that isn't truly before the Lord. And we were enemies with God, but then Christ dies for us, right? You you think about what he talks about in uh, Romans chapter 3, that Christ was this substitutionary sacrifice 
for our sins. When, when we get into Romans 6, we talked about that we were baptized with Christ and now we live these new lives. In Romans 8, that the Holy Spirit comes and begins to enable us to obey in a way that no one ever could under the law. In view of God's mercies, in view of what God has saved us from, from death and hell and judgment, in view of all that, it says, give God your life. Right, so if some people have talked about that the first 11 chapters are, are about the creeds of Christianity. And so you need to believe the creeds. And now in 12 through 16, now not, don't just believe the creeds, now behave as a Christ follower. Those of you who like grammar, Romans 1 through 11 are the indicatives of the Christian faith, what God has done. And now in Romans 12 through 16 are the imperatives. What we we do in light of what Christ has done, in light of the sending of the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul begins, I I love this picture, right? He pictures this idea of being a living sacrifice. Right now, in the first century Greco-Roman world, like sacrifices were everyday affairs. If you were a a Greco-Roman pagan, you might have you know, slit the throat of a goat recently, poured the blood on the altar, and then burned the goat. That would have been pretty common. I haven't seen that this week, anybody? Right? But same thing, if you were a Jewish person, you would, you would have had regular encounters where you would go to the Jewish temple, and there the priests, same thing, they would they'd let the blood out of animals, they put the animals onto the altar, and they would burn these, these sacrifices up to God. But the picture here is Paul says to the Christian, you're alive. You have this vibrant body and faculties. Now lay it down on the altar for God. Every single day. Now it's been said one of the problem with living sacrifices is they can crawl off the altar. And so in many ways, this is a command that gets repeated every day. Give your life to God. Jesus said, follow me, right? Take up your cross daily and follow me. And so this is the idea of Jesus, Jesus has bled for you. Jesus has died for you. Now live for God. And Paul says this is the proper worship of God. Now different translators actually translate verse 1 by calling this action our true worship or spiritual service to God. But what he's getting the point is that the primary way that Christians honor God, it's not necessarily done in buildings or at altars. It's referring to the how we go out into the world and live our lives. Uh, it's about you laying down your life on Monday morning, not just Sunday morning. You, know, you get up tomorrow morning and maybe you say, God, I want to be the most godly student in my class. I want to be holy for you and how I treat people in, on, on the practice field or in the, in the concert hall. I want to be a, a trustworthy friend that honors God. Or maybe if you're going into the marketplace tomorrow, you're saying, God, I want to, I want to have utmost honesty in my business. And I want to be, I want to be generous uh, even in my business dealings. Or if you're a father, father, you say to the heavenly father, tomorrow I want to be the absolute best and most godly dad I can be. Even when my kids don't obey me. Maybe especially when my kids don't obey me. And a lot of people say, well, that's, that's a very tall task, this, this high call of being a living sacrifice to God. And the, the issue is, yes, it is. <laughs> this is the high call. 
But we be given further explanation in verse 2 on how this begins to happen. How, how we can be these living sacrifices for God. And verse 2 says, don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world. But the idea of being transformed by the renewing of your mind. And, and it says, then you will be able to test and prove what God's will is. I always want to remind people that when we're reading the New Testament, all of these commands are in the plural. I think a lot of times we claim these verses individually, but this is a work the church actually does together. Together, don't be conformed to the world. Together, be, have your minds removed. Together, let's be transformed. Together, let's sink God's will together. Certainly has individual implications, but it also has corporate ones. Now, what I, what I want us to realize is the, the, the amount of ground that has been traversed since Romans chapter 1. When it starts talking about the mind... You should, you know, if you've been with us or you've read the Bible, you should remember, man, do you remember how Romans 1 talks? It talks about people being with depraved minds uh, and, and futile minds. And that, that those futile minds and those depraved minds spilled out to all sorts of evil activity and dishonor of God. In fact, let's just go back and see the kind of ways you could be molded into the world that... Paul's saying, don't be conformed by these ways. Let's jump to maybe verse 26 of chapter 1. This is this idea that God has given people over to their sinful desires. He's given them over to their depraved minds. What does it look like when we're shaped by the world's mold or moved by the world's desires? Verse 26 of chapter 1 says, Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. It goes on to say, furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do, so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. And says, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Paul is trying to get the minds of those who have trusted in Christ and repented from their sin to say, that was then, but this is now. That was what we used to give our mind and our affections and our lives to, but now a living sacrifice. By the mercy of God, change is expected. But it uses that idea, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, or don't be squeezed into its mold. Right? Like a chameleon adopting to the color of its surroundings, the world tries to press you into its colors. It wants you to look like them, and feel like them, and celebrate like them. The world wants you to adopt to its value system. But Paul said, we don't get our marching orders from the world. We get our 
marching orders from the word of God. We get our marching orders from the example set by Jesus Christ. We get our marching order from the, the teaching of Jesus Christ himself. And it's saying, though, but everything starts in the mind. Right? If you read the Old Testament, sometimes they'll use the term heart. In, in the Old Testament, idea, the heart was the center of the person's being. And they're kind of one and the same. That we're driven by the things that we love and the things that we think about. Um. Let me just ask, like, what did you think about this week? What did you meditate on? What did you read? What did you watch? Evaluate the, the things that you read and watch and observe. Was it pressing you into the mold of the world and celebrating the things of the world? Or, or were you being transformed with a, a view of Christ in all things to the glory of God? Paul is saying that if, if we let the world mold us, it will. And, and I, I mean, I've shared this before. I'll share it again. Like this, I know this from my, my life personally, because I think from age 10 to 17, I probably looked at pornography at least every other day. And what happened is I just had a sexualized mind. I, I could make anything you say perverted in two seconds. And that's what happened to my mind. It had been molded. It had been shaped. It had been conformed. And so that what God had to do over a number of years is he had to transform my mind so that there was something pleasing and good coming into my mind and into my heart and out of my lips. And that's what Paul is saying. If you want to be transformed, it's going to start with what you consume with your mind and with your eyes and the things that you love and things that you spend time with. So you know, let me encourage you, right? That some of the things that helped me in that time of my life was I started reading the Bible every day. It, 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 it's sad to admit, in the time of hypocrisy, I would look at the Bible and then I would look at porn later. But God was doing something. He was breaking in to what God was doing in my brain to start freeing my mind. One of the reasons why I still read today is because God used Christian literature and books to really bring some victory in my life. To start spending the last hour or two of my day reading rich truths about God and his character meant to walk with him. And again, slowly transform my mind. Other things that have helped me and maybe will help you is learning to sing the great Christian hymns of the faith. Learning to sing songs that not only do we sing about God's greatness, the words, but we begin to attune our affections that he truly is glorious. And so this is what God is trying to help you. So let me just ask you, like, what do you need transformation out of? Like, what is something that you know that you've been conformed to the world and it's, it's eating you for lunch? What do you need transformed out of? Um, maybe you, you don't like your body, right? You don't, you know, you're struggling with gender identity. Like, you need to transform your mind. You need to get away from things that the world are teaching. And, and what does God say about how he has made you beautifully and wonderfully? I'll run into people that they, they don't feel like they can get through a single day without smoking pot. They, they believe that they, they're dependent on a substance or a prescription or something versus learning to be dependent on the Holy Spirit of God, right? And dependent on on the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Those are things that they start with the mind. We start believing one lie, then we believe two. So what do we? how do we saturate our mind in truth? So let me encourage you, turn off your TV, get rid of your social media accounts, burn your pornography, right? Conse Consecration starts in the mind. 
And so let's be relentless about retraining our minds. And in so doing, it says you'll be transformed. In so doing, we'll begin to test and approve what God's will is. We'll begin to walk out of the slavery of sin that was envisioned in Romans 1. And we'll begin to have freedom like we've never had before. Even obedience to your parents will become a joy. Parents, amen? That was pretty quiet there. Friends, this is the kind of great disturbance our city needs. A community of people whose minds have been transformed and whose lives are consecrated to God. Years ago, a faithful pastor was asked the question, what is the greatest need for the people in my church? Right? And the pastor hears that, well, you know, they need good sermons, they need some excellent shepherding. And, but this minister said, uh, the greatest need of my people is my personal holiness. Let me just assure you, that's the same thing that your kids need. The greatest thing they need from you, Dad, is your personal holiness. The greatest thing that your neighbors need is your personal holiness. The greatest thing that your spouse needs is your personal holiness. The greatest thing your business needs is your personal holiness. And so what does it look like to be consecrated to God and to have our minds transformed so that this happens? And it starts today. <laughs> it starts today. Join the great disturbance. Be consecrated to God. In many ways, Romans 12, 1 and 2, it's this broad brushstroke of what it looks like to start giving your life to God in light of what he has done for you through Jesus Christ. And you start asking, well, what does this look like more in practice? Right? And I find it interesting what Paul brings up in the next subject matter. Right? He could have talked about taking every major city in Rome by storm. He could, have, he could have spoken about you know, some uprising against the emperor or figuring out a way to get the right Christian leaders leading different places in town. He could have, he could have wanted to establish a brand and a publishing house. <laughs> what I find so interesting about one of the first things out of Paul's mouth about creating the great disturbance or being a part of the great disturbance, it's so seemingly insignificant, but he spends six verses talking about humble church service. How are you going to change the world? Humble church service. The way you serve one another. The way you love one another. Let me read this again, uh, verses uh, 3 through 8. I'm just going to read it in a slightly different translation. This time the English Standard Version, just so you hear it a little differently. Paul says, "For the, by, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, to not think of himself more highly than he ought to think. But to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let's talk about humility, and then we'll talk about church service. Uh, one of the first things that Paul says is just stay humble, brother and sister. Don't think more highly than you ought. Um, Paul's warning is to not be drunk on pride, rather to be sober-minded according to the measure of your faith. That is one of the, I would say, one of the best gifts about having a wife is she keeps me sober-minded. 
Some Sundays you guys give me some wonderful compliments about all the great pastoring I do. And when I get home, she says, take out the trash. God bless her. Right? But, you know, there was a somewhat famous uh, composer, Leonard Bernstein. And they asked him one time, what is the most difficult instrument to play in an orchestra? And he said, it's the second fiddle. It's the second fiddle. The first fiddle leads the show. I mean, first trumpet blasts away. But second fiddle takes poise, patience, humility. And one thing just to remember, dear Christian, is we're all second fiddle to Jesus. And one of the great privileges, Jesus says, is don't just be second fiddle to me. Be second fiddle to one another. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. In Philippians chapter 2, it actually says, consider others better than yourself. We want to play for him. We want to play for one another. But again, he's not just talking about humility in general. He's talking about humility in the context of life in the church. And he begins to describe the church as a body, a body made up of the different parts. You know, the eyes are over here, and we have some livers over here, and armpits back there. You know, the, the God, like everything matters. Everything is connected. And no, no part is more important than the other. You need them all. They need them to interlock. You need them to use their gifts. You need them to use their service, not be like, ah, oh, why do I got to be the elbow? No, you get to be the elbow. You get to be the elbow. And you have value. We all have value here. And so one of them is to know that God has made you with value and receive that and use then your second fiddle to serve others. Others is we have to see the other parts of the body and express appreciation and value for them. You know, I'm so thankful for the, the gifted singers and instrumentalists in this church. You help this tone-deaf pastor sing and worship. I'm thankful to just people up here earlier who give prayer and insight and oversight to missions and making sure missionaries get money and prayer and keep us alert on how to pray with them. Right? We, our church, we need each other. We need the prayer warriors. We need the serving saints. We need the sharp-minded truth seekers. We need the gentle servants. I need you. You need me. In this final section, Paul lists off seven different gifts or separate different seven different type of people who have gifts um each has a part to play i want to look at this list kind of a little haphazardly but you might see what i'm doing why uh for, for one of the gifts that he brings up that, that is a value is he says praise god that we have some people who have mercy gifts some of you are patient with those who have weaknesses you labor long and hard with people in their struggles Jesus said they were supposed to forgive people 70 times 7 times, but you're the type of person that can forgive them 7,000 times 7. And so we want to encourage you, keep offering your compassion and press on. But you merciful people are probably appreciative that we have some prophets in this church too. Right? Gift of prophecy probably refers to a unique ability to speak God's truth in a particular moment. Right? These aren't the infallible words that have to be accepted without proper vetting. No, no. Prophecy, like in 1 Corinthians 14, it has to be vetted. It has to be judged. But someone who's kind of prophetic is a helpful contrast to the mercy person. Sometimes you need a clear word on a messy subject. Similarly, there are gifts of leadership. 
Some of you can see the end from the beginning. You can look ahead and provide direction. Now, such people should not be proud. Rather, it says lead with diligence or lead with zeal. Be faithful and consistent and patient to bring others with you. Along the way, God brings us, it says, generous givers, right? Generous givers, they invest in churches with time and energy and finances. Um, They'll meet the needs of the poor. They'll give above and beyond to their church, to global missions and local ministries. Money is a wonderful tool when it's put in God's hands, when it's consecrated to him. In addition to the prophets, it mentions both teachers and encouragers, right? The teacher, we need teachers to instruct us in good Christian doctrine, sound, healthy doctrine. We need people to retell the gospel stories to us. We need people to pass down the great truths from one generation to another. And then those encouragers, they come in and they like give legs to the truth. Like press on, let's do it. Let's go. They challenge us to take God at his word. They exhort us to obedience and action and love. And then beside them, it mentions servants. These are often the quiet people in the shadows. You see them picking something up that no one else saw. Most of the time, they do stuff all during the week that you have no idea happened, but God saw them, and without them, your church family would, would fall apart. Jesus washed the feet of the disciples and he said, now that I have washed your feet, so too go wash one another's feet. Take the low position, embrace the second fiddle. Humble church service. I just love that. Right? And there's been churches throughout history. It could be 50 people. It could be 500 people. But when you find a church filled with individuals who say, I want to humbly serve my brothers and sisters, that is a mighty fortress for God. It, 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 it's a great disturbance in the city. Some of the churches that are doing some of the greatest work in our own city, they're not the large ones. They're just faithful. They love one another, and then they love their neighbors. In many ways, I care very little whether this church grows in great numbers. Uh, I care very little if we have a beautiful church someday with stained glass windows. But I will pray for, strive for, and encourage us to be a church just filled with humble people who serve one another with their gifts. It's beautiful. It's the body of Christ. And that's why I enjoyed, we had a membership class last Sunday afternoon. Six saints, they're getting it. They get that being actively involved in a church is a glorious disturbance in a fallen world. Satan hates it. The world resists it. And yet the church is God's plan A for the world and there is no plan B. And so to say I want to commit to be a part of the church, to serve with my gifts, to learn to love, to learn to forgive, that just sends waves of grace into the city. In this church, when we we give our gifts, our minds are going to be renewed together. In this church, we will lay down our lives together as the consecrated people of God. One last word as I close. And that's this. If you've not trusted Jesus Christ, if you haven't joined his church, today is a day of hope for you. You turn away from sin. You turn away from Satan and death. You put down your spiritual resistance against God and you become a servant, a believer. Um, you know, one of the images in Scripture is that this, is a, this world is an evil world. It's ruled by the prince of the air. 
And the way that you enter into the kingdom of God is you die. That's the surprising thing. You have to die to this world. Even the image that we use of coming into faith is baptism. Baptism symbolizes that death. I want to die to my old life. I want to die to my sin. And then the same image of baptism, though, is when you come out of the water, you're now alive to God. Friends, that's exactly what Jesus Christ did. He died. And yet he was like the, the seed that goes in the soil that when it died and, it, and then it came forth and burst in the ground, it gave life. That's how you join the great disturbance. You believe in the one who died for you. You trusted him. And he brings you into this new kingdom. He brings you into the great disturbance that's going to do great good for this world, but ultimately for the glory of God. Let me pray. Father, I'm asking in your mercy that uh, we would see your mercies, that we would view them, that we would be moved by them in such a way that we would delightedly lay down our lives as living sacrifices for you. And I pray, Lord, that it wouldn't just be an individual thing, but that it would be the community of God's people wanting to serve together, Uh, that we would be a part of a a great disturbance in uh, a broken and evil world. But a great disturbance for good, to speak truth, uh, to meet needs, to proclaim Christ. I pray, God, that you would help us this day to renew our minds according to your word and truth. That we would live in such a way that we would honor you in a pleasing way and live according to your will. In Jesus' name, amen.